are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Sisters, grab your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark. Our sermon this morning is Mark chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 40, and we're going to read all the way to the end of Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 8. So we started this journey quite a while ago, back in January of 2019, and we've traveled with Jesus. We witnessed the beginning of his ministry in Galilee, and then we followed Jesus to Jerusalem, and we witnessed the controversy that took place there. Last Sunday, we looked at the death of Jesus, and this Sunday, we conclude Mark with the resurrection, our last sermon together on the Gospel of Mark. So let's give ourselves to God's Word, starting in verse 40 of chapter 15. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joses and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Father, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word now. So we're at the end of Mark's gospel, and as we look back and as we consider the story, we can say with certainty that the cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus, is the, the climax. It's the high point of Mark's gospel. And as we consider the narrative, all the roads lead to the cross in the gospel of Mark. And with that being true, gloriously so, as we saw last week, 
Last week, we looked very carefully at what happened at the cross and what the cross accomplished, and we found salvation there, glory. With that being true, we realize at the same time the cross cannot stand by itself. It must be accompanied, it must be interpreted, it must be wed to another event for it to be good news, and that other event is the resurrection of Jesus. And so last week, we, we saw how Mark meticulously prepared us for the death of Jesus. As readers, careful readers, we, we could not miss where the story was going. And we're going to start this morning by considering how Mark meticulously prepared us for the resurrection of Jesus, just like he did for the cross. So as we put on our thinking caps and review what happened in Mark's gospel, <clears throat> we find hints of Jesus' resurrection and his, his mighty deeds. So Jesus moved throughout Galilee, performing signs and wonders, and Jesus was ministering to a people who were careening towards death. Think about the leper, or think about that demon-possessed man who lived among the tombs. And what Jesus did in his ministry, he was grabbing these people and bringing them into the realm of life. And we see that Jesus devoted himself to undoing the, the effects of death. And in Jesus' spirit-empowered wake, we find paralytics walking, we find blind men seeing, deaf men hearing, and we cannot forget the most compelling act of all. Remember what Jesus said to that girl who was laying on that bed, dead. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Jesus spoke, and the girl lived. And as readers, we look at all those events, and we say, there's something going on here. So we think about Jesus' teaching as well. And when we look at Jesus' teaching, we find resurrection. We remember the Sadducees came to Jesus and they came reviling the precious promise of the resurrection. And what did Jesus say to these men? He said to them, you are quite wrong. In fact, when we look at Jesus and how he taught, everywhere Jesus looked in the Old Testament, it seems that he was finding resurrection there. Jesus found resurrection in the writings of Moses. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He found resurrection in the songs of Israel. We already read this this morning. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he found the resurrection in the prophets. He went to the book of Daniel chapter 7. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And more specifically, we find Jesus speaking of his own personal resurrection. Three times we've heard Jesus say, and the Son of Man will rise, and the Son of Man will rise, and the Son of Man will rise. Even more, with, the, with death closing in on Jesus, the trial of the cross drawing near, we find Jesus consoling his men with the word of resurrection. Jesus said, just hours before his betrayal, but after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So we've been prepared, and finally we make it to the end of Mark's gospel, chapter 16. Here we meet an angel, and we find this glorious news. The angel says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. We get this glorious news at the end of Mark's gospel, and this is what we get to dig in together as God's people, this news of the resurrection. And so our plan this morning is really simple. First, we're just going to read through the text. We want to hear the resurrection story with, with, with fresh ears. And then after we listen to the story, 
we're all going to have questions, and we're going to ask the text three specific questions. What does the resurrection mean for Jesus? What does the resurrection mean for the disciples? What does the resurrection mean for us? The three questions. So we can get to work and start looking at the story. So if you have your Bibles, look down at your Bibles. So we've read through the text once. And as you catalog what we've read, you quickly find that we have a a menagerie of events, a menagerie of persons and circumstances that have been crammed together in these 16 verses. We move from scene to scene, meeting new characters, and we ask as readers, where is the unity in these 16 verses? How do these 16 verses fit together? And this this feeling of disjointedness is compounded when we look into our English Bibles and what our editors of our English Bibles have done for us. Looking at my own ESV, my ESV makes a break in chapter 15 verses, between verses 41 and 42. And then they make a really hard break between chapter 15 and, and chapter 16. And, and so the initial question is when we look at this text for the first time, we have to ask, well, well, should we read these 16 verses together as a single unit? Is there unity to this? Can this actually be told as a single story? Well, the answer is yes. And it looks strange at a glance, but Mark wants us to read these 16 verses together as a, as a unit. And he's given us an important clue. So as we move through these 16 verses, we'll, we'll find ourselves being moved to three separate scenes. We're going to be at the cross, we're going to be at the burial of Jesus, and then we're going to be at the empty tomb. But what is so interesting is that there is a, a similarity that unites these three scenes. And what's that similar, similarity? Well, the same women appear in each scene. So these, these women give unity to the text, and, and Mark wants us to pay attention to these women. In each scene, we find these women doing something. This is so interesting. What are they doing? Well, they're looking at something. In essence, Mark has set this story up that these women are our tour guides. They're going to lead us and they're going to show us what we should look at and what we should pay attention to. So we're going to learn the gospel through the eyes of these women. So that's our goal. We're going to read the story, paying attention to what these women do and what they see. So we can start by looking at the first scene, the the scene of the cross. And so we pick up the story where we left off last week. And and when we pick up the story where we left off, we we find the camera. We can think of the story like a a camera lens. And it's, it's zoomed in on Jesus in the centurion. Jesus dies. He breathes his last. And we hear the centurion speaking in our ears, truly this man was the son of God. But as we move into our text, the camera begins to pan out. It begins to zoom out. We have a a wider frame of vision all of a sudden. And with this wider frame of vision, we no longer just see Jesus, but out here we see some women. And these are a new set of characters. We haven't met them before in Mark's gospel. We meet Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and Joses, and Salome. And so we ask as readers, well, who are these women? And Mark tells us in verse 41, he gives us some very important information. Mark says, when Jesus was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And so what do we learn in verse 41? Well, well first, we, we learn that these women were loyal supporters of Jesus. 
Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, and these women have been following him since the beginning of his ministry. Even more, Mark uses this specific word. They were following Jesus. Remember how Jesus called his disciples. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. These women are not just loyal supporters. They're actually disciples. They're learners of Jesus. And lastly, they're, they're minist- they were ministering to Jesus. These women were all in. They were supporting Jesus generously from their finances. Jesus was this itinerant minister moving throughout Galilee, and these women were feeding him and supporting him. And so what are these women doing? Well, we learn in verse 40. They were looking on from a distance. And this is so important to take notice of. These women witnessed all that happened to Jesus. They saw with their very eyes Jesus' procession out to Golgotha. And then they watched Jesus crucified. And ultimately, they witnessed Jesus' death. So they're seeing one, the cross. These women witnessed Jesus' death. They see it all from a distance. We come to the second scene, the burial of Jesus. So remembering what happened last week, Jesus was crucified at 9 in the morning and he died at 3 in the afternoon. So this, this execution takes about six hours. Now we have to understand that this was fairly abnormal in the ancient world. Death by cross was not an, an efficient way of killing someone. If you wanted to kill someone fast, there, there are quicker ways to do it. The whole point of the cross was not efficiency, In killing someone, the goal of the cross was to maximize pain, to maximize shame. And sometimes the condemned, the crucified, would linger on the cross for days at a time before they would die. But Jesus dies quickly, six hours. And this surprising fact is discussed at length in our text. We we come to Pilate and we learn of his reaction in verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And surprised, he wants to make sure that Jesus is actually dead. So he he sends the centurion. He he sends for the centurion. The centurion comes and confirms the fact that Jesus did, in fact, die. And this is important in Mark's narrative. Mark is assuring us, his readers, that Jesus did, in fact, die. Jesus did not pass out to only revive later in the tomb. Jesus did not swoon. It wasn't an elaborate ruse with Jesus and his disciples making a plan that somehow he would fake his death and then come back to life later. No, Pilate inquired and he found sufficient evidence that Jesus did in fact die. So Jesus is dead and then we meet this character, Joseph of Arimathea. And Mark tells us that this Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the council. So this means that he would likely have been a rich man and that he would have political sway within Israel. He's a well-respected man. And most importantly, and this should catch our eye as readers, Joseph of Arimathea was a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. And this is key. Joseph longed, Joseph yearned for what Jesus was preaching. Remember what Jesus was preaching. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we don't know all that was going on in Joseph's heart as he approached Pilate, whether he's experiencing grief or despair, but we do know this, his concern for the kingdom of God, his desire for the kingdom of God led him to care for Jesus' dead body. And so Mark tells us what Joseph of Arimathea did. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now the temptation is just to skip over that verse and move on with the story, but There's something going on here with Joseph of Arimathea. 
We need two pieces of background information to appreciate what Joseph does here for Jesus. First, Romans, per custom, would leave the dead body on the cross. Remember what the goal of the crucifixion was. It was to, to maximize shame. And so they would leave the dead bodies of the crucified suspended on the cross in the, in the public eye for days. What would happen? Well, birds would come and peck at the dead corpse. Wild animals would come and, and chew on the dead corpse. And Rome had a point. Look what happens to those who defy us. You won't even get honor in your burial. And so here's Joseph of Arimathea, and he takes courage, and he requests the body of Jesus. I need to take care of this Jesus. And as we think about this, this could have implicated Joseph in the Jesus movement. This could have had adverse effects for his life and his family, but he takes courage, and he goes to take care of the body of Jesus. The second fact that we need to take notice of is the time frame. So Mark tells us that the Sabbath was approaching, and he wants to make sure we don't miss the time frame of what's going on. Verse 42, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. So we have to think about this. Jews don't reckon time as we do. So the Sabbath for the Jews didn't start at Saturday midnight or Saturday morning. They would start observing the Sabbath Friday at sundown. And they would celebrate the Sabbath until Saturday at sundown. And so we need to place this in the life of Jesus. Jesus is crucified at 9 a.m. He dies at 3. And then evening comes. And we know that sundown is only a matter of hours away. And so if Jesus' body is going to get taken care of before the Sabbath began, Joseph Arimathea would have to move quickly with determination and haste to care for Jesus' body. And that's what he does. He moves quickly. And so Joseph comes before Pilate, and Pilate says, yes, you can take care of Jesus' body. Then we read verse 46. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and laid Jesus in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Jesus is buried. But this is so interesting. The scene isn't over yet. Who shows up again? Well, it's the women. They make another appearance. Look at verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Again, Mark is calling our attention to this. He's saying, hey, do you see this? The same women who witnessed the crucifixion and the death of Jesus have now witnessed his burial. They've, they've seen where Jesus was laid. They've witnessed with their very eyes the, the, the stone rolled in front of the entrance of the tomb. So we've got scene one, we meet the women. We've got scene two, we meet the women. Now we've got scene three, the empty tomb. So the Sabbath arrives, and rather appropriately, nothing happens. Mark doesn't tell us what happens because nothing happened. All was at rest, and Jesus' dead body rested. But once the light of Sunday morning began to shine, a flurry of activity takes place. We meet our women again. And in fact, these women take center stage for the rest of the story. Look at verses 1 through 3. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? These women are going to anoint Jesus' dead body. 
They're going to perfume it, but they're in for a surprise. They quickly learn that they don't have to worry about rolling the heavy stone away because we come to verse 4, which says, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Even more, we learn that these women did not need to buy these spices. They don't need them. Jesus' body doesn't need perfuming. We read verses 5 and 6. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And so here we can, we can just pause and start to connect what we've learned from these women. So at the crucifixion of Jesus, these women stood watching at a distance. And what did they see? They saw everything that happened to Jesus, his procession, and ultimately his death. Then that evening, Friday evening, these women stood watching, and what do they see? Well, they see the burial of Jesus. They, they see the stone rolled in front of the entrance of the tomb. And then again, early Sunday morning, these women go to the tomb of Jesus, and what happens? They've seen something, they've seen something, and here comes the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord says to them, See the place where they laid him. In effect, the angel comes to these women and says, look here. Do you see it? It's an empty tomb. He's gone. Christ has been raised from the dead. What's happening here? Well, we're learning the gospel through the, the eyes of these women. They've witnessed everything that's happened to Jesus. So interesting, as you compare how Mark tells this story to the Apostles' Creed, The Apostle Creed says this about Jesus. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. And who witnessed all of this? It was these women. They saw it all. But we realize the story isn't over yet. These women have witnessed everything that's happened to Jesus, and because they've witnessed everything that's happened to Jesus, they're given a job. The angel speaks to these women in verse 7 saying, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. So tell the news to the disciples. But then we come to verse 8. Strange note. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And this is unsettling for us as readers. These women have witnessed everything that's happened to Jesus. His death, his burial, his resurrection. They have the raw materials of the gospel right in front of them. They have the news that changes the world. But what happens? Well, the story doesn't end with shouts of victory. It doesn't end with songs of deliverance and joy and merriment. It ends with trembling. It ends in fear. It ends in silence. The end, the story is over. And the story naturally invites our questions as readers. Mark has written this account of Jesus in a certain way so that we have to wrestle with it. And so our job now as readers is to go back to the text and ask questions. What does this mean? So we can ask our first question. Well, what does the resurrection mean for Jesus? What does the resurrection mean for Jesus? As we think about the ministry of Jesus from the very beginning, Jesus' ministry was surrounded with controversy and trial and trouble. Right from the get-go, Jesus was thrust out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God to encounter who? The devil, where he was tempted and tried. 
And after he began his ministry, he came to his hometown, and his hometown had, had heard of the mighty things he had done. But they doubted him. They did not believe him. They said, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And the scribes, the, the educated men in Israel, witnessed and heard what Jesus had done. What did they say? Well, they say, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. And the crowds witnessed what Jesus had done. When Jesus goes to Jerusalem, they say this to Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus is presented before the Roman army, Roman soldiers, and they mock him saying, hail king of the Jews. Jesus is suspended on the cross and the chief priest taunt him saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And so as we think about it, all of these characters, whether it's Satan, whether it's Jesus' hometown, whether it's the scribes or the chief priests or the Romans, they all say something about Jesus. And what are they saying about Jesus throughout this narrative? They're saying he is not the Christ. He is not the Son of God. And what we find taking place in the Gospel of Mark should not surprise us. If we know our Bibles well, we know that this was all prophesied in the Scriptures beforehand. And we need to interpret what we find, the story that Mark tells us, through the Scriptures. So we need to go to Psalm 2 this morning. And Psalm 2 will help us understand how to read Mark's Gospel. So Psalm 2 tells us a, a very troubling scene. It tells us that the nations... The nations are going to rebel against Jesus. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So Psalm 2 says very clearly that the nations are going to turn against the Lord and specifically against his king, his anointed, his Messiah. So we have to read on. And if we read on in Psalm 2, we we realize that the God of Israel will not keep silent in the face of treachery and mutiny. He's going to respond to these nations. And so listen to how the Lord responds to the nations in Psalm 2. The psalmist says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is an amazing scene to consider. Here are the nations rumbling and bumbling, committing treason. And what does the Lord do? He laughs. And he has said, I have my king and no one will move my king. And then the Lord speaks to his Messiah, his king, directly in this psalm. He turns to his king and he speaks these words of assurance. He says to the king, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. What is the God of Israel saying to his king? He is saying, It doesn't matter what the nations do. You are my king. Take that to heart. You're my son. And I love you. Ask of me anything you want and I'll give it to you, even the very ends of the earth. So we have this clear movement in Psalm 2. The nations rage, but the God of Israel intervenes, and he makes his king stand fast. 
And so we come back to the Gospel of Mark, and we read the Gospel of Mark through the lens of Psalm 2, and we, we clearly find the treachery, the raging of the nations. Here are the nations gathered around Jesus, and Israel's included in this. Israel condemns Jesus and hands Jesus over to the pagans, Then the pagans kill Jesus. We've got Psalm 2 going on here. But with Psalm 2 in, our, in, in the background of our minds, we have to ask, well, when will the God of Israel speak up? When will he act? When will he set the record straight? He did it in Psalm 2. How is he going to do it in the Gospel of Mark? And this is where we find the significance of the resurrection. Because the resurrection is the God of Israel setting the record straight once and for all. Get this. Sinful men condemn Jesus, saying he is not the Christ. But then God raises him from the dead. Sinful men mock Jesus for his claim to be the Christ, the Son of God. But God, through the resurrection, proclaims that Jesus is indeed Lord over all. Sinful men doubted Jesus' identity. But God, through the resurrection, declares once and for all, you are my son. This is so interesting. How did the Gospel of Mark begin? Chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And how does the gospel of Mark end? Jesus is raised from the dead. And when we read that through Psalm 2, the resurrection is saying this, you are my son. Perfect bookends. And so when we let this bookend settle in on us, it leaves us with staggering news. The news is this, that Jesus who grew up in Nazareth, the Jesus who ministered powerfully in Galilee, the Jesus who taught the crowds the kingdom of God, the Jesus who was betrayed by his friend Judas, the Jesus who was crucified by the Romans and condemned by Israel, the Jesus who was laid in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb is the one sovereign king over all, and he's alive. That's what the resurrection tells us, that he is truly God's son. And everyone, including you and me, have one obligation to him. And we can go back to Psalm 2. When God saves his king, he tells the nations, kiss the son, serve him. And so what does the resurrection mean for Jesus? It means that he is the son of God. It's God's stamp of approval on Jesus. Jesus was right and everyone else was wrong. So that's our first question. We have a second question. What does the resurrection mean for the disciples of Jesus? So if we go back into the story, back to chapter 14, the last report we heard about the disciples was not a, a pleasant report to hear. They all fled from Jesus. When, when, when persecution was no longer an abstract idea, a, a theory floating out there, when it became a concrete reality, when the pressure was turned up, when the heat was applied to them, they all fell away. Even worse, Peter, who had so boisterously supported Jesus, saying, even though they all fall away, I will not. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. This Peter nosedived. Peter's story is so shameful. Even Peter fell away. This has to settle in on us. These men were not casual followers of Jesus, just riding the wave of enthusiasm. These men were handpicked by the Lord Jesus. These men were, were, were trained by Jesus. Jesus had poured his life into these men for a matter of, of years. Jesus trusted these men to represent him to Israel, to speak the good news to Israel. And what happened to each and every one of these men? 
each and every one of these men failed. We could say they were failures. And so we ask, well, what does the resurrection mean for the disciples? Well, look at verse 7. The angel speaks to the women and says this, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. If we have eyes of faith this morning, if we have ears to hear, this verse speaks a message of powerful grace. Think about this. What does the risen Christ, the glorified Son of Man, the King of the universe, desire upon his resurrection? What's the thing that he's looking for and asking for? Well, we see Jesus' heart. He yearns to gather his scattered, fallen disciples. He longs to see his men together. He calls to them that they, might, that they might come to him and that he might forgive them and he might confirm them and strengthen them. Well did Isaiah write of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And so we ask, well, what does the resurrection mean for the disciples? It means grace. It means their story isn't over. They failed, but Jesus comes to gather them and strengthen them. And here we learn about discipleship. We've been studying discipleship throughout the Gospel of Mark. We can ask ourselves, what is following Jesus all about? What is following Jesus all about? And we learn here as we look at this verse that it's all about grace from the beginning to the very end. And we can question ourselves this morning. We can ask ourselves, well, why did I leave my sins behind? Well, the answer is the grace of Jesus. We can ask ourselves, well, why did I follow Jesus at that one particular point in my life? What's the grace of Jesus? We can ask ourselves, well, why am I sitting right here right now? How did I make it to this point in my life? What's the grace of Jesus? We can ask ourselves, well, how will I make it to the very end? How will I navigate through all the temptations and trials of this present age? Where will I find courage in the midst of trouble and sorrow? What is going to lift my head up when I have sinned and failed and fallen? Which I seem to do so on a daily basis. What's the grace of Jesus? And we need to know this. We need to take this to heart. The same Jesus who called and taught and loved and forgave the 11 disciples is the same Jesus who leads us today. And this is our exercise as God's people. We need to call to mind all that we've learned about Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark. Because the truth is this, Jesus has not changed at all. Think about Jesus' character, his patience, his love. Even looking at this verse, look at his grace that he extends to his disciples. They failed, but Jesus gathers them. This is our Jesus. And his desires remain yet strong and true. His grace is yet fresh and free for us. So what does the resurrection mean for Jesus' disciples and all disciples of Jesus? It means grace. It means grace. This brings us to our last question. Look at what does the resurrection mean for Jesus? It means he's the son of God. What does the resurrection mean for the disciples? It means grace. What does the resurrection mean for us? So here we have to wrestle with Mark's strange ending. This ending leaves us in the lurch. It leaves us in a really uncomfortable place. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
This ending is so, it just doesn't satisfy you at all. So we have to think about it. As we think about it, we, as we reason about it, we, we quickly understand that these women were not silent forever. The word of Jesus got out, and the evidence is right before us. We're reading a book about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Even more, we're reading a book that recounts the experiences of these women. What they saw, what they felt, how they reacted. These women weren't silent forever, and I don't think that's Mark's point. And so we ask, well, what does this strange ending mean for us? How does it instruct us? Well, again, I think Mark has a strategy. Mark is a crafty writer. He's creative. And he's concluded this gospel this specific way for a specific reason. He's doing something with us as his readers. So think about this. We have been with these women, and we've been with these women for some time. We were with these women Friday. We observed Jesus' death with them. And then Friday evening, we followed these women to Jesus' tomb where he was laid and the stole was rolled in front of the entrance of the tomb. And then we were with these women early Sunday morning as we came to the tomb with them and we we found that the, the stone was rolled away and there's this angel sitting there that says, Jesus has been raised. So we've been following these women around. They've been our tour guides showing us what to look at. Jesus' death. Jesus' burial, Jesus' resurrection. But then something changes. What happens? We've been with with these women, but all of a sudden these women are gone. They flee, they run away. What happens? Well, we're left here as readers in the empty tomb. The women have run. But we're here and we've witnessed it all. Think about what we've witnessed. We've witnessed the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And we've heard the news. The angel's words are ringing in our ears as readers. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. We have the news. The women are silent. And Mark ends his gospel this way. I think this is what he's doing. Mark asks us, dear reader, dear reader, what will you do with the news about Jesus? Will you spread it to the nations? Will you proclaim to one and all what God has accomplished in and through the death and resurrection of his Son? Will you proclaim that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God? Or will you be fearful and silent as well? I think this is Mark's strategy. He comes to us, and this is a fitting way to end the Gospel of Mark. Dear reader, what will you do with the news about Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the news about Jesus. It is the best news ever told, ever proclaimed, ever shouted. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the Son of God. He is the true ruler. And we're so thankful for the grace that we find in this text. We see the heart of Jesus, and we realize that our lives are built upon grace, moment by moment. And Father, we ask for your help now. We want to be a people who are faithful to speak the word of Jesus. Would you keep our mouths from being silent? Would you give us great joy to speak the news that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.